Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Hello Martin. Alex. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Good, good, good. Good stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So on today's episode, we're looking at microwave boilers and some other alternatives. Uh, we're also joined by Alexandra Deschamps-Sancino, who's going to be talking about her new book, Creating a Culture of Innovation. Uh, and finally, we're going to have a tech spot where we are joined by our colleague, Gary, who's going to talk us through micro apps. So quite a diverse episode. This yeah, time. And, and definitely something for the uh, for the nerdy amongst us with the micro app stuff. And um, Gary's very keen on those types of things, but uh, which is cool. Um, sure. the, the one that really caught my eye was this microwave boiler. That kind of, you know pricked an interest thinking crumbs that's a different technology to be used in a different way but uh yeah it instantly made me think i know it's not the same technology but it made me think of that sort of 1950s nuclear age idea that you know in 10 years time everything's going to be nuclear powered and blah 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 and for some reason a microwave boiler just fit nicely into that americana idea Yes, that, uh, nice new the technological yeah. optimism, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it will save all our problems. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the company, it looks like there's one big player in the scene. We've discussed them and their name already, Heat Wave. We're not a massive fan of the name because it's W-A-Y-V, but I see where they're going. Um, but, yeah, what's what's the news? What's the What's the deal with these guys? Yeah, it was published a little while ago, a few weeks ago, but it was just like it was interesting from the fact that you're thinking, oh, a microwave-powered boiler, what's this about then? Um, mm. And we, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit about some of the other other comparisons to it, but um, a friend of mine is a, is a plumber um, and is very keen on fitting boilers, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and therefore, it's kind of that kind of, I was thinking, okay, so when we're trying to decarbonize the UK and things like this, predominantly the world as well, but the UK have put some targets in place for removing boilers, for example. Gas boilers will be banned from, apparently, I'm just you know, reading from the article, um, from new homes from 2025, which I was thinking, that's just around the corner. And based on the pace of change that we talked about that we're going to need, um, there's some stuff there that people are investing in these new boilers in the same way as new cars and all this new technology that could become obsolete pretty quickly, really, or within the next decade. Yeah. Um, especially buying new stuff, you know, and okay, how long does it last for? So all of those kind of things had been making me think about this subject, uh, you know. Um, and also one of the things that which I tried to do some digging around um, but the power supplies to our houses and things like this for this new type of power generation systems and things like this and how we're going to consume it. Do we need things like three-phase supply to the house now when we're going to have a, a larger demand on our electricity? Um, most domestic houses just have one phase uh, um, uh, and the power stations themselves generate in three phases. Um, uh, red, yellow, and blue. <laughs> mm. um, uh, and what that means is it goes through this whole system of, you know, from everything from 11 kV all the way down to our domestic house, which in the UK is sort of 230 or 240 volt, depending on 
um, what, what you talk about. But that's because you're really just tapping one of those phases from your from your 415 system and providing it into your house. Um, but really, the power consumption required um, by your house, if we're going to electrify everything, including boilers and things like this, is going to have a far greater demand on the house. So it might be one of those things that we've got to look at the, the infrastructure as well associated to it. But putting that to one side, um, yeah, microwave boilers. Okay, well, mm. you yeah, know, it's, um, it's an interesting concept. Uh, you, you know, when you microwave food, you kind of get that a lot of steam generated off of it. So whatever whatever the microwave is doing is very much interacting with those um, water uh, molecules. So yeah, and and inducing power into them in some way, shape, or form. So um, it does look on the surface of it something probable, um, mm. but obviously with all of these types of things. Um, it's all about whether it can be achieved or not to the scale and size and things like that. So we've all moved and got very used to having um, instant hot water. Mm. Well, obviously some people don't, but, you know, the, the way we live today, it's fairly, common, yeah. Yeah, it's fairly common, but we don't have hot water tanks anymore in the so much in the loft anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. But one thing, so my previous house well, I used to live in, we had a very complicated heating system. We used to have solar panels for heating the hot water. We used to have a, a, a log burner, which could also have a coil through the, the uh, hot water tank that could heat the hot water. Um, and then we had kind of a, a uh, immersion heater for heating the hot water as well. <laughs> but that was on the hot water tank. Mm. Um, and that meant that, okay, you could heat the water up, but you could, you know, you, you had to use it up. And once the water used up, then that was it, really. Mm. Um, but the capacity of the gas boilers, the combi boilers, means that you can, you know, you can generate a lot of, you can, if you look at what you're trying to achieve, raising the temperature of water in some regards, like 50 degrees instantly. Mm. 50 degrees c is that's a lot of energy um and uh it's still you know. yeah I, I still sort of marvel at the fact that i can turn my hot tap on in the shower mm. and it's hot water straight away yeah. like i remember being told as a kid don't use it all up and i still <laughs> have that in the back of my head exactly. I better not, in case someone's getting an after no it just you turn it on and it goes yeah yeah, and that's and that's the thing, see, you know, you could, and and that's why I kind of say. So on coming back to the micro boiler, it, it says the electricity load will be the same as a electric oven. Okay, mm. so it's not like a, a like I said, not like a thirteen amp plug that you yeah. can plug it into, but but you can run an electric oven off of the existing distribution system. It says it will be eighty four percent effective in converting electricity into hot water that's that's an impressive boast if it's yeah true. and then there's the byproduct that another 12 percent of waste heat is recycled to make the total efficiency 96 percent which is a huge you know one mm. of the biggest problems of converting anything from mass to uh, power um is in is, is in the conversion 
Um, is the loss, yeah. Yeah, it's in the efficiency of that conversion. So, you know, once again, this is them them talking about this and obviously, like I said, scaling it up and producing what they need to be able to produce um, is there. So they're talking about uh, their target is to um, initially target the what, 170 new builds mm-hmm. to install for this date, which is the 2025. Yeah. Um, so still got some level of investment in the innovation of these types of devices and proving out the concept of them. Um, but it looks, yeah, it looks, like I said, on the surface of it, promising. We did do a little hunt around the uh, company's website and things like this. Yeah. Um, but there's not too much about it apart from these news articles. I think it's interesting because it's it's all obviously tied into these goals. Like you say, no new build homes after 2025 we'll have gas boilers no new gas boilers after 2030 and then all gas boilers phased out by 2038 mm. and they say that will have or will contribute to decarbonization by removing up to 14% of the UK's annual CO2 mm. so like it's obviously a lofty goal <laughs> but this can only happen as we've discussed before in tandem with other things because if you're you know microwave boilers all well and good but if they're all being fueled by coal power plants, which are then mm. spewing out carbon, it's it's not even a zero sum game. So mm. it's it as that fourteen percent, I think, is a nice thing to put on your website. But that probably includes also moves to uh, these small modular reactors and things mm. like that, and more green energy coming in as well. Exactly, and it's still it's still got the energy storage issue with renewable energy and things like that, which yeah, there's a whole load of stuff there. And the thing is, there are conventional technologies out there today um, that work, you know, that already can be used. But they they also have some problems, as in if you look like um, heat pumps, you need mm. you need a reasonable size bit of land um, available, which in my house wouldn't be possible because I just have a small yard out of the back of the house mm. um obviously solar is a is like i said we used to have a solar hot water um system and they are great um when the sun's shining um yeah. but then you've got to revert back to your more of your hot water tank approach which for me you know we've kind of it, it, <laughs> that space where the hot water tank is no longer <laughs> is yeah. accessible all those types of things and the systems have to change within the house to facilitate that and a lot of people have gone for the more the pv uh, solar panels for generating electricity not for heating up hot water mm. Um, yeah, biomass boilers as well is one that's mentioned as, a, as, as an alternative. So there are some alternatives out there, but like with everything, it's all to do with convenience a lot of the time. Things get adopted because they're convenient, and then what happens is the price point comes down. If you, if yeah. You like. So, yeah, none of them, whether the microwave uh, boiler can produce instant hot water at the rates that we're used to, um, or whether we have to compromise, that's always going to be the challenge with the decarbonisation. What kind of compromises is the public going to accept? Yeah, and I think as we discussed before, <laughs> um, the the threat of carbon emissions can feel very distant, mm. but uh, as a species, we don't really like 
going back once we have a luxury we don't like going back on it so you know somewhere in the future okay the world might boil and we'll all be extinct but i want to jump in the shower right now so mm. yeah it's tricky tricky working that balance but yes. yeah it looks exciting it looks interesting i'd never said that about a boiler before but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah it's uh yeah, fun. It's sort of fun in a way, but fun news article about a uh, using a technology in a different way. I like it. I like it a lot. Okay, uh, I think it's probably time uh, to jump into our chat with Alexandra and discuss some innovation. And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we're joined by Alexandra Deschamps-Soncino, author, consultant, public speaker, entrepreneur, and more. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I came across you uh, through your latest published book, Creating a Culture of Innovation, and it struck a chord because we are at Atlas, an innovation-focused company. Um, and we obviously approach that from a, we're a tech development place, so we approach it from a very tech perspective where it looks like, from what I've read, uh, you take a more holistic approach to the whole idea. What, what drew you to innovation in the first place? Well, as a company founder, as a consultant for the last 10 to 15 years, I have worked with quite a lot of uh, research arms of major businesses, and I started seeing some trends. My first book uh, was on the smart home sort of thing and trend. Uh, and then with this one, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I just captured everything I've seen in the past um, 15 years, which have been attempts to shape innovation in a particular way, whether that is uh, through interior design choices, uh, for others it's uh, group practices and the way in which social structures are placed or put in place uh, to get people to be supposedly more innovative. Uh, and I just thought that there was something very interesting about doing that now and capturing that now when we're in the middle of uh, essentially a real estate crisis of the workplace and uh, a crisis of how we might move forward uh, with getting people in the same room and getting them to think differently. Yeah, I mean, Ed, in the introduction to creating a culture of innovation, you did mention that a lot of the the research was being done as we were heading into a pandemic. How did that affect the work? I, it was funny because I could um, sort of not exactly predict where we'd be today, but uh, I did have to finish writing the book in August last year. So you could say the early days of the pandemic. I think we now know a lot more about what people are prepared to do and not prepared to do. Um, but I did think that there would be something about people being forced back into spaces that were massively distracting um, very counterproductive uh, and not particularly good spaces to think in or to be innovative in. Uh, and so I, I could see that coming. I didn't necessarily think it would take on the flavor it has right now in you know what you might call late pandemic. Um, but it was it was fun to kind of write about these things. For sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, Speaking of that, coming out of the pandemic, you obviously a lot of the book is discussing how to create 
uh, spaces for to nurture a culture of innovation? How do you think, um, yeah, in the future, the sort of normalization of work from home and these things that have almost been forced on us uh, will affect building those spaces in the future? Do you think it's a positive thing or? Um... I think it's a really interesting um, challenge for businesses to think about who they bring into that process, because I think that now we have sort of gotten over the idea that people need to be flown in for a piece of work. Actually, they don't. They could do that piece of work remotely. They could do that from their home. Uh, whether their home is full of pets, children, and a significant other, is that's really the question. Because if given a quiet space to work in that is your home, it might be more conducive to deeper thinking, um, having a chance not to commute in and spend an hour to two hours taking a train with a million other people, you know, those are possible benefits, uh, but they have to be weighed up against, uh, yeah, the, the distraction of being stuck at home. So for many of us, especially women um, in, you know, family situations, uh, it's been absolutely terrible for attention and for deep thinking, because these mm. are not spaces that are, um, you know, working from home isn't particularly conducive to that if there's loads of other things going on at once. So I think in the context of innovation work, who you bring into a process of innovation has really changed because you can get uh, colleagues involved from other uh, offices and from other departments much more easily than you would have before. I think that people would have used the excuse of location or availability and distraction of physically going in and out of meetings, physically going out of buildings, that soaked up a lot of time. You know, at best you could have had maybe four meetings a day uh, that were kind of deep thinking type meetings, whereas now you could notionally squeeze in a bit more with a lot more parties. But mm. how distracted those parties are and how, um, yeah, again, conducive to deep thinking their environments are is the real question. But the challenge is to uh, then throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, only the office is a dedicated, quiet space where you can do work, which we all know is not true. Unless you have been given your own uh, dedicated office space, um, a la university building in the UK, where you have your own sort of, you know, uh, door that you can close. Many of us have been working with very distracting open space offices or hot desking situations that are not particularly conducive to accidental conversations that don't distract everyone else. Um, or again, this deep thinking where you can just sort of dive into a topic, do some research and not get interrupted by the visual noise around you or literally the noise around you. Mm. And I think there's something there about creativity and new ideas as well with, with innovation. Okay, new ideas, maybe there's not such a thing as a new idea, but um, at least we're, we're trying to create or reinvent some uh, concepts and ideas around that. And a lot of people say when you create those, create those things um, or those ideas or concepts, it happens in quiet moments or you know in spaces of contemplation or whilst you're exercising and things like this and i think one thing we're finding is and i think many people have is that zoom effect you, you're just cramming meetings upon meetings upon meetings because people are more available um because they're not traveling or whatever but 
the the, the diaries are just getting filled up with meetings. So where are where are those mental spaces for for um, contemplation or thinking in in a world? Um, I, I I find that particularly you know difficult myself is to create a space now that you can think about things that aren't just about rushing off from one meeting to another um does that just sorry go on no no i was i was going to agree with you and i think a lot of people have had in the past mitigation strategies that have been uh really interesting and exotic like um i used to be working for a client that used to um book themselves into a meeting uh, just so that no one else could book any of that time. So they would go lock themselves into a conference room and do their work. But at least that was earmarked as not available time for collective, you know, mm. choosing to have a meeting with someone. And they just, you know, on point were like, my time is precious and I'm going to book this time. And the subject of the meeting was always something abstract that no one else would recognize. It wasn't, I'm sitting in conference room B, come and bother me. It was a strategy meeting with Bob or whatever it might be. And there was no Bob. And this person just knew how to carve out time. And I think the pandemic has made managers very nervous about productivity. Um, and I think wrongly so, because we've seen that people have been working more. They've been working more hours. They've felt more pressure, as you say, to show up on camera, to sort of, you know, it's the worst of presenteeism in the workplace. Mm. Um, but that ability to just relax as a manager and say, I want 20% of your uh, time to actually be without meetings and let's orchestrate that and let's organize that. And as a business, let's be comfortable with this. Let's be comfortable with the fact that not all of your time has to be socialized through meetings. I mean, we used to have problems with meetings, lots of email, you know, lots of meetings could have been emails. And I think now it's sort of, you know, lots of Zooms could have been uh, meetings uh, in a completely different format or emails or even nothing at all. Uh, yeah. And it's just because people want to see each other's faces and feel good about being at work while the dog is chewing on something. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in some of your, your um, YouTube uh, chats about um, lessons haven't been learned from the past. And you think a lot of what you write about is about the fact that those lessons haven't been learned. Are there things that you can think about that, you know, obviously a global pandemic isn't something we've really experienced in this kind of scale, especially in, in, the, in the West. Um, uh, is there something you can think about that might be relevant? I know they're slightly putting you on your spot, that you think there's lessons from the past that we could have learned. Well, I do think that all of the work of the Quickborn, which I mentioned in the book in the first chapter, uh, are lessons that did not particularly travel through the test of time, as it were. Uh, the Quickborn pioneered uh, the idea of office landscaping. And office landscaping was really about controlling the amount of distraction in an open plan office. Uh, they created rules and sets of principles uh, that made it impossible for someone to just be distracted by people walking down a corridor, which is, you know, we encounter this all the time. You think of any open plan space you've ever worked in, 
just people walking down or people congregating outside of a meeting room waiting for the other people to walk, you know, to kind of liberate that conference room. All of that creates noise and movement and physical movement in the space that most interior design choices um, basically expose, whereas they were really keen on not doing that. I think in the context of the pandemic, what we can really think about is what they attempted to do, which is create neighbor neighborhoods between teams, really thinking about who you work most closely with um, and how to create, uh, again, kind of mechanisms for talking to that particular department with those particular people that you talk to the most in the most effective manner. Maybe it's about having, you know, a kind of lunch hangout, open video hangout if people want to hang out at lunchtime and just want to say hi to each other without there being an agenda of any sort. Maybe it's about uh, making sure that the sort of Slack channels aren't shared with the entire business and all the teams all at once, but there's sort of dedicated places for people to have very specific thematic conversations that don't pollute the, you know, notification uh, landscape of everyone else. Um, but that idea of neighborliness and who your work neighbors are really, and I'm not just talking about individuals, but departments, um, I think that thinking about your uh, workplace as a sort of uh, landscape uh, is really interesting. And that's something I don't think we've absorbed enough of. Uh, and again, the office landscaping work of the 50s was really rich in those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. mm. And I've, we've seen that a little bit with the video conferencing. Like it's very, it's very dry the way it's presented in that kind of way. And we've tried some different kind of collaborative platforms and one of the ones we tried to kind of had a graphical representation of the office and you know you could be in this particular area in this particular area and the graphical representation it was was fun you know is kind of it made you feel a little bit like you were in that kind of community and you could go and hang out in this space and that space the technology behind it is pretty simple you know it's just like you know and there's that graphical representation of it that engages with humans at a level that makes it so a, lo a lot of the stuff that i've noticed with with what you've done is is really looking at the you know architecture or or the design of this or that and one of the books you referred to as the um olivetti uh, design concepts or however that was and that looked like a fantastic um beyond business really wasn't it is it was about the community outside of the business and everything that goes with that and that's one thing it feels like we're slightly missing again is that it's it's very difficult to create a community within a business when we're all virtual maybe um i i think it's interesting to look at olivetti because it was it acknowledged that it occupied more than a uh capitalist role, I suppose, which is to employ people. Um, most people's, um, I think, love of their work is tied not only with the income, but really with their colleagues and uh, good relationship building with their colleagues. A lot of people will find also the love of their life at work. Um, there's lots of things that work is there to do. And I think Olivetti, because they were working at a time when um, I guess communist uh, and socialist principles were starting to emerge in Italy. Uh, they decided very early on that their uh, employees would not just be disposable people who came and went through the business, but would be people who would be able to grow 
personally uh, and financially as the business itself grew. So uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that employees could take a meeting with uh, the manager, the floor manager, and review how they spent their income. And the manager helped them budget what they spent their money on so that they could slowly put some money aside. Uh, the business started uh, training people up so that their literacy would increase because these were mostly factory workers at the time, assembling typewriters in the beginning of uh, you know early 1900s. And eventually this grew into offering an on-site crash. And uh, as I make the point in the book, uh, a canteen, which you and I think of as a sort of baseline for office work mm. these days, the canteen only came in in the 30s after all of these other extra benefits had come in. And I think today we struggle to offer the extra the other extra benefits, <laughs> but we'll give you free food very easily. And mm. I think that's a kind of, you know, very uh, sly um, shortcut through what a business is capable of offering. Mm. Um, one thing that did strike me though with the Olivetti was that, that we talked about innovation and change and obviously, they they suffered uh, as a business because maybe they, they they innovated in the workplace, but maybe their products didn't innovate at the same pace. But that's my assumption. I don't know enough about the the business themselves. It, it, do you see those two things as two different things around, as you said, the culture of innovation in the business and what products and services those businesses produce as a part of that innovation culture change? Well, I think it's interesting to think of the longevity of businesses because Olivetti as an active brand technically still is operational. They still sell um, corporate printers, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. The business was uh, world leading for 60 years. Mm -hmm. I think you would struggle to find an organization born in the 2000s that will last 60 years. <laughs> and I think that that's also something to think about and to reflect on, which is generations of employees can go through a business and utilize that business to sort of trampoline from a state of working class to middle class to possibly wealth. And um, that's something we don't necessarily think of because the turnover of staff these days in the average tech-driven business is two years. So with two years, uh, you don't get a lot of time to actually anchor yourself in someone's life. And if you could only hold on to them for two years, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm. And we don't think about that enough. We don't think about how long it takes for a culture of innovation to actually develop, which is probably having someone around for circa 10, 15 years or so to really understand both the industry, the politics of the business, how um, the industry itself is changing and how the business changes according to it. And for a manager and a good innovation manager to anchor themselves inside the business in such a way that they can make change as opposed to short bitty projects that don't move the needle of the business at all. People get frustrated, they spin off and the innovation goes away. Hmm. Yeah, and what one one bit? So sorry, Alex. <laughs> no, it's okay. Carry I'm on. Carry on. Those questions again. You can <laughs> crack on. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, based on your research, everything that went into the book, is there one thing um, that you would suggest to any business to start doing now to encourage innovation? Is there a sort of a golden rule to follow, or is it really just a combination of all of these different um, concepts coming together? 
I think if there's one thing that I would encourage businesses to think about is how the work that they might have invested in either through an incubator, a dedicated group, whichever version of those things, how that is socialized across the rest of the business. I think this is really forgotten. Um, we assume that good ideas, once they're presented to a business at large, will just move things and make programs work out and happen, but it doesn't. Um, mm. I refer in the book to uh, Thomas Allen's fantastic work around this, and he calls it at the time in the 1977 when his book came out, um, he calls it the technology gatekeeper, which was a person who would socialize the outputs of research across the whole of the business. Uh, if you can think of a person in your business who can do that today, uh, make sure that that person is empowered to do that extremely well. If you don't have a person who you can think of that does that today, invest in such a role. And ideally, this is someone who has been in your business for a very long time. It's not someone you're just plucking out from the outside world because they won't have the relationships that you need. They won't have, again, this anchor to the industry, the business, its politics. It needs to be someone who's fairly senior, who's been in the business for seven plus years, and who can look at a piece of innovation work and go, hmm, we need to talk to such and such a person at this major event because that's when you know they're most open to new ideas and they have the time, or don't show it to that person because they're having a bad time right now. And so all of these are you know, people-based uh, ways of socializing innovation work. And I think that's the most key concept in the book, I think. Hmm. I really like that because I've written down a question here is about how do ideas how do ideas and especially good ideas become accepted and there's lots and lots of good ideas out there you know and I think that was your key point there that you'd, uh, we haven't learned the lessons from the past because it's not always the best ideas that bubble up to the top um, and it's actually probably a smaller minority of those that are good ideas that actually reach the top. And a lot of the ideas just get buried and they get regurgitated and they get reinvented or rephrased re in a different way. And, and it is a continual churn of ideas in my mind. And we just occasionally one will pop up that is good, hits the market, et cetera, et cetera. But and that's that. There isn't really a a new idea out there as such we, we we're just trying to we're trying to promote the good ideas <laughs> or or i think there's rather a um a set of condition that presents itself around an idea that makes that idea sort of again yeah. latch on um one example i give in the book is uh, the example of uh, a friend of mine nico leary who um helped create something called Node Red at IBM. Yeah. And the reason why that project sort of took over is because it was presented at the yearly IBM conference uh, and shown to a set of key managers. If it hadn't, and it had just sort of stayed at, as his Skunk Works project, basically, um, in, you know, um, uh, in the UK, which isn't a key sort of, I mean, it's a, it's one of the areas that IBM has a, a holdover, but it's obviously an American company. Um, you know, why would they have paid attention to something one researcher was doing in an office in the south of England? And so it was because it was presented to key people at a key point in time. 
Um, and that's, yeah, that's absolutely key. He's left the business now, but I think Nick was in IBM for close to 20 years. Hmm. And that's also, you know, that matters. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I know Martin, as well as I could sit and talk about innovation all day, uh, but I really wanted to also bring in the uh, the Low Carbon Design Institute you have coming up very shortly. Uh, we've talked on the podcast a fair bit about um, zero carbon goals, uh, and I was just excited to hear what your approach to this idea was, what the Design Institute is aiming to achieve. Well, uh, in its first instance, it's really a prototype for a full-time organization. And this prototype is essentially a virtual, sadly because of the pandemic, a virtual uh, residency that is happening at the same time as the London Design Biennale. So from June the 2nd to June the 25th. And what I'm doing is hopefully taking on a cohort of circa 20 people who will be given a whole bunch of content and a whole bunch of presentations around different aspects of climate change that I've had the chance to encounter throughout my work and throughout my work as a, um, as a consultant and let them sit with that information, be able to answer as many questions as they like and create a piece of work in response to it. So giving people both the knowledge, but also the time and creating that space in order for that work to be exhibited and to be turned into a print publication. And the idea there is to uh, allow people to do a deeper dive than they might necessarily have access to right now. I think a lot of what I talk about in the book on innovation is about time and space. This is creating time and space for people who happen to have a creative background. It might be in the fine arts, it might be as technologists, but they find themselves at a loss for either how to respond or what to do. And this is an opportunity for them to get deeper knowledge and respond to that deeper knowledge. I think there are not enough creative people looking at climate change from a perspective of deep knowledge. And I mm. think we need more of those uh, lateral thinkers in the banks of today, in the energy companies of today, and giving them the access to the knowledge gets them to respond in ways that those types of businesses can say, yes, you get it. And yes, let's work together. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. It's it's like a concept of almost like um yeah cultural dissemination around but around zero carbon. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, well, yeah, I, I can see time's ticking on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Um, the book's great. We'll obviously put links to everything in the episode description and. Uh, Hopefully we can have another chat soon. Absolutely. Always happy to come on and thank you for having me. No, thank you. Fantastic. And so for this tech spot portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by our colleague, Gary Stubbings, who is a UI architect, works in front end software development, I guess. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I understand we're going to be talking about micro apps today. Yeah, that's right. Um, so essentially, I just wanted to give a brief discussion about um, what micro apps are and how we're using them uh, at Atlas um, to just give a, an overview of, 
of the kind of innovation approaches that we're taking um, using these modern um, te technology and development approaches. Fantastic. Yeah, just to prevent any confusion, uh, Gary, can you just start with what's the difference between a micro app and a microservice? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as some people who are on the technical side are aware, microservices have been around a while and we are using microservices in our architecture. Um, so microservices is obviously all about splitting out all those little services and then stitch them together. Um, obviously benefits for speed um, of deployment um, and um, containerizing your um, backend code. Um, the idea for micro apps is basically uh, an adaptation of the microservice approach, but for front-end technologies. So basically the same idea is to create lots of little micro front-ends and then stitch them together into a single user interface. Um, so it's very similar in concept, but um, there's quite a few more technical challenges um, associated with micro apps because of all the variant browsers and, and application technologies. Um, so how, just uh, let's pitch the whole picture together because I think hopefully know the answer to this, but how do the micro apps talk to the microservices? Um, well, they basically talk through a, a application programming interface or an API. There's various ways of doing this. Um, the approach that we've taken um, is to use GraphQL. Um, and how we distinct our micro apps essentially is to align a micro app to talk to a, a specific microservice. Um, it might actually talk to a number of microservices, but that is how we are essentially uh, deciding how we group the um, the application slices together um, so into different product features. Um, the benefit of that obviously is that um, we can program that code service and application in isolation to the other parts of the services and application. Um, so it gives us a speed of um, development and um, obviously we can isolate things for testing um, as well and produce features much quicker. Yeah. And what's the, what's the difference then? We talk about API in general and we have discussed it and we did talk to Darren previously about the microservice architecture, especially around the, the messaging bus uh, that required to communicate with those types of things. So during that, we kind of talked about different things around API, maybe REST technology and things. Um, so what, why GraphQL? What, what, what's GraphQL giving us that maybe other API type technologies don't? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, so essentially GraphQL does provide benefits um, to the front end development specifically. And the ben main benefit it provides is that with GraphQL, you are, you are able to slice up um, parts of your understanding of the API schema from the client, um, which means that the API could evolve on the server and it could be evolving in parts that um, the client doesn't particularly care about. And as a result, the client won't be impacted by any change. Um, one of the main things that we use is, is something called GraphQL fragments, which allows us to essentially select specific parts of um, data that we require from the server actually inside the, the client, which means that as the API evolves on the server and new things are added, it doesn't impact any of the client interface. And, and GraphQL was really kind of invented, really, wasn't it, for mobile technology or the, the adaption of having a, that lighter weight approach to API integration, wasn't it? So it? It came later in the sequence of API technologies, really. Yeah, that's right. Mobile technology evolved. Yeah, and, and it does obviously provide this um, 
the, this query language interface that you can use. And it's the query language interface that gives it the real strength. And the reason why it's called GraphQL is because you do you do actually query in graphs. So you can actually have a level of depth to the query or, or um, that you'd ordinarily have in like recursive issues in a standard API. But in the graph, you can decide how deep you're going to go by, by querying it from the client. And at this point, Alex is probably a little bit lost, but um... <laughs> already, as soon as you mentioned uh, job titles, I was out. But no, it's uh, I, I guess because we talk a lot about agile development and stuff around what we do and also in the podcast, you know, what you were saying there, the fact that they're all tiny modular things that I guess lends itself to that approach, does it? So you can constantly be making updates and then seeing if they work, if they don't work, roll back, move forwards. That's right. So what we do with each of our um, application features is we try and associate a level of um, risk to each one. So we look at how many people are going to be using that particular feature. And then obviously we can gauge um, the level of testing and effort that needs to go into each individual um, feature. So for example, if we've got a feature that we know 100% of our users is going to, to use, we um, focus um, a higher level of testing um, on that particular feature. But if it's something that's going to be maybe um, a pre-release feature uh, for people to have early access to, um, and we just want to get it out quickly so that they can see it, we are able to still do that. Um, so we get the best of both worlds um, by providing this micro application uh, infrastructure. Um, so yeah, to touch back on the micro app stuff. So we talked about how the front end talks to the back end, but that doesn't have specifically have to be a micro app. It could just be a monolithic app talking through that GraphQL structure. So so you talk about we talked about some of the advantages there of the micro app approach and the fact that we can deploy a bit more strategic thinking behind how we deploy and test it. What you also mentioned there's going to be there's some challenges as well. That around taking this approach because obviously in effect they're isolated applications aren't they so what That's are correct. the challenges around this kind of micro app approach so as you can imagine um it, the architectural challenges becomes um coming to light when we have to consider um how we're going to slice up the different applications where the where the responsibilities lie if there's too much cross responsibility between the applications then it makes the um the code quite complicated but you've talked about how services have this um service bus we actually do something similar on the client side called an event bus and we use the event bus to um that the individual applications can register into so we can actually handle cross communication between them um, essentially the advantage of that is that we have decoupled the application from the specific logic so we do have a shared event bus which we can push and um, pop messages out of um, but then it's the application's responsibility to decide how it's going to deal with those specific events a great example is um, all of our applications are uh, basically they need to handle changing language yeah so one one thing is going to change set the language to be um, a new language, you might be changing from English to, to German, but all of the applications need to respond to that and update their components to show the, the correct language. So that is something that sits on our global event bus um, that each application is um, hooked onto. Um, and then obviously it handles its own change with its respective technology, whether that be Angular or React or Vue.js. And and one other aspect of that is obviously um, security or credential logon. How, how, do we, how do we manage that type of thing in a in effect, when you've got one app 
Oh, sorry, when you've got multiple apps <laughs> and you're it's, logging on, in effect, aren't you? It's much in the same way as I just mentioned. Um, we use the event bus to share the authentication uh, token. Um, so one application is actually responsible for, for, for collecting the authentication token, which is the login app. Um, but actually, every app um, has a hook into the authentication library. The authentication library is handled by the um, the code that actually makes the request to to get the data from the services. Um, so as soon as that returns that it doesn't have a token or the token that it's got has been reported as invalid, it will trigger an authentication um, flow and then it will push them back onto the authentication server to to get a new token. The result of this essentially is that we could spin up one app without the the login. UI, if you like, um, and then as soon as you try and hit that app and and um, get some data, it will actually push you to the uh, login server, um, and then you'll have to obviously log in and and get your token. Excellent. So, um, is there any great tips that you can give people thinking about this kind of micro app architecture? What what what's been the best thing about it for you from a from a development architectural point of view? The best thing, to be honest, has probably been from a developer point of view, is that we can actually choose technologies. Um, we can choose different technologies for each micro application. And the benefit of that is that obviously there's this whole myriad of, of libraries available. And those libraries are usually written in a specific language. Yeah. So when we're looking at a, a mission or a purpose for an application, we can actually have a look at those libraries and try and pick the best tool for the job. Um, whereas before we've been like, oh, we would really like to use this library, but it's in the wrong language, essentially. Um, but now it means that, yeah, we can actually use whatever whatever library we like, as long as we create an application that wraps it in the correct language. And you get ultimate flexibility. Yeah, exactly. not, yeah. similar to that, you can don't have to load the whole library either, do you? I mean, <laughs> or... yeah, I mean, there is that uh, a monolithic app. Obviously, um, every time you're you're running it locally to test it, you you're running, um, yeah, everything all, every single time. Whereas actually, we can just load up specific modules, which gives us much um, faster development time. And also down to the deployment as well. Uh, we don't do it currently, but our goal is to essentially be able to individually deploy the micro apps without any of the other apps going with it. We've already got the infrastructure set up to do it. Um, we're just in the process of, of trying to figure out the the um, release process for that. Does it, um, I mean, I know it's so development time is sped up. How does it affect when the app is running itself? Does it, does it benefit that in any term it, it actually does speed it up a little bit yeah so a, a lot of modern technologies um, like angular and react they do have what what they call lazy loading which is where they don't necessarily load all of the modules at once um, they make them available as and when you need them um, using this micro app te technology it essentially does exactly the same thing but the, but the only difference is rather than the technology choosing how to lazy load the modules we're actually handling it ourselves so there's a little bit more complexity there um, but we're using a technology called uh, single spa uh, and single spa makes that easy it adds all of the, um, the interfaces that we need to be able to to load things in as we choose Excellent. I was going to start talking a bit more about the uh, front end type of technologies we use and the graphical elements of it, but actually, that's uh, probably enough for today, isn't it? Maybe we can uh, we could go on for a little while. For <laughs> I think um, actually, you know, we've covered a lot of ground there already, and maybe 
we're creeping into other areas a bit. But um, is, is there any other elements of the micro uh, micro app that you'd like to talk about? There, go. Um, I don't think so. Just to I put mean, you right on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's it. I mean, as you said, um, one of the benefits is that we can actually have the different technologies at the um, you know at the application level. Um, mm. So we, we can choose different frameworks, not just different technologies. Sometimes um, JavaScript technologies, they they try and make something that works across all, all languages, but that's quite rare these days. And, and usually things are either specific to React or Angular or Vue.js. Those are probably the three biggest ones that are being kicked about at the moment. Um, and developers in in the UX area, they want to work with all of them. They, they want to to see all of the emerging um, features that are going into them. And obviously the benefit we have is that we can say that, yes, we can use all of them and we can use the libraries associated with them. Fascinating stuff. Well, yeah, as you said, Martin, I think it's so easy to stray into other areas, but we'll just have to get you back for another tech spot soon. Yep. Thank good. you, Gary. All right, thank you. Cheers, Gary. Okay, that's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alex. I think that was a good episode. Uh, fantastic interview with Alexandra. She provided us with a five pounds off voucher for new APRES customers. So we'll put that up on the in the episode description. I think it runs up until the end of April. So you've got a few days there. If you want to grab the book, five pounds off. Enjoy it. And also check out our YouTube channel. She's got some really good little short um, snippets of books that have influenced her uh, in the writing of her book. So um, they're only generally a couple of minutes each. So definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. We'll pop links to that, everything on the website, in the description, etc. So to finish this episode, I have an innovation quote. This is from Theodore Levitt, who is a German-American economist. And he says... Creative creativity is thinking up new things. Innovation is doing new things. <laughs> yes, very good. We there can we all go. come up with ideas. Yeah, um, it's the doing that matters. <laughs> it's the doing that matters. Yeah, <laughs> whether whether they're genuinely, you know, a new idea is a is another thing. But as we discussed in the interview, new ideas are very difficult to come up with. But um, there were plenty of ideas out there that need to be promoted and true and innovated so yeah absolutely all right i will catch you next week okay look forward to it if you have any thoughts on the atlas podcast please don't forget to leave us a review if you'd like to get in touch you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com follow us on twitter at ats underscore atlas and you can like our linkedin page found in the episode description if you want to know more about atlas products services and projects head over to our website weareatlas.com to find out more